You're listening to Harper Audio Presents, a podcast that brings you conversation and inspiration from your favorite authors, editors, and creators, giving you new perspectives on the world of books, culture, and the arts. We are part of the HarperCollins Presents Network of Podcasts. I'm Anna Maria Alessi, and with me today is Christopher Moore, who's very generously joining us to talk about his new novel, Noir, which is on sale uh, wherever books, audiobooks, and ebooks are sold. My first question is I have read that you say you set out to write a classic noir story where a poor working mug and a dangerous dame tumbles into his life, and then it was going to be dark, and it was there was going to be fog and gunplay and danger. But tell us what you ended up with. Well, I think I say in the afterward, I end up with sort of Damon Runyon meets Bugs Bunny. Um, <laughs> and, well, because when you're a kid, um, when I was a kid, you first encounter tough guy talk in the Bugs Bunny show. And it turned out later on, I found out that the reason that Bugs Bunny and Daffy and all those guys talk like gangsters is because when they were making those car- cartoons in the 40s, Edward G. Robinson and Humphrey Bogart and George Raft was on the Warner lot. And that's what they saw when they looked out the window. And so I didn't know that. Yeah. And that, so that's sort of how the vocabulary came forth. And then the stories of Damon Runyon, which are all told, set here in New York, and they're all told um, from the point of view of sort of wise guys, but benevolent wise guys. And they're told in this sort of present tense, telling a past tense story. Yeah. And which I learned you can't do, you know, not to yeah, get too in the tried, weeds with right? language. Yeah, I tried. You tried about for a couple th- chapters and then yeah, you're like, I yeah, can't this. Yeah, this isn't going to, I learned why Damon Runyon never wrote a novel, is you can't write a novel like yeah. that. Yeah. But uh, so, but the language really turned it, but also um, in some, in a subgenre of noir, there's it's just relentlessly dark. Mm. Jim Thompson and James M. Yeah, Cain, I want to ask you about you know, them later. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and and um, I just don't have the tolerance for that. You know, something has to be have a little more light and be a little more fun for me and and for my readers. I hope you know. Yeah, I think that I, I interview a lot of authors and 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 everybody gives the advice: write for yourself, like write what you want to read. Mm-hmm. I mean, but I I feel like. You so very consistently do that. I mean, this is sort of the perfect example of like, I, I have to be entertained myself when I'm sitting here doing this. I mean, and I know how hard a work it is. And I, so, so tell me a little bit about that. I mean. Well, you know, and there's that sub, that sub argument of what you just said, whether does a main character have to be likable? Well, yeah, I'm about to spend two years of my life with that character. I do need to like them or at least like watching them. Um, so, and I think I came to the business to our, the craft or the art of doing this because I wanted to find that book. When I went to the library or the bookstore, I wanted to get yeah. that book that I delighted in. That right. The discovery of, of something that makes you laugh in, in your bathtub is just, you, you know, there's you nothing like it. And there just weren't enough of those kind of books. And so, yeah, I very much write a book that I would like to find. Uh, you know, that is such an apt description of what it feels like when you're reading your books. It's it's you're you're in the bathtub and it's sort of a a, a guilty pleasure almost. You know, you're mm-hmm. in the bathtub and you're always laughing. 
Well, I appreciate I that. So. I yeah. always, I do appreciate that. Well, I appreciate that you appreciate it because it's what I'm going for, and it's such a, it's such a lovely discovery. Yeah. When you just, or you, you wake your partner at night. Yeah. You know, and or you, you get no thrown jump, out of yeah, bed yeah, yeah. because you, you, you're giggling. Yeah. You know, and and I'm, not, and it's not. And I don't say that with any sense of self-advertisement. Right. I, I just, I love it. I love the feeling. Yeah. I love reading David Sedaris for that right. very reason right. that he's gotten me thrown out of bed for, you know, for giggling at his stuff. And um, and I just happen to write fiction and, and try to build it around things that crack people up and still tell a story and develop right. character and do all those things that you right. have to do, you know, to make Six, a, a yeah, book work. Yeah, to make work. a successful book. All right, so let's back it up a little bit. I... I when I first started talking to authors, I would always try to do a synopsis of the book, and I realized that authors are much more capable of doing that themselves. So tell us, give us the, the I guess, the elevator pitch of the story, because you can't give away too much. And then I want to ask you specifically about characters, but tell us a little bit about the story. Well, first, I would I would say I'm not that good at it. And Come whenever on, they no, whenever they ask me to do the jacket copy, I say I say I tell them if I could do it in 200 words, I wouldn't have written 120,000. But it's just a working mug, a guy who works in a bar in San Francisco in 1947, and and a dame walks in the door, and and she's uh, she's a dish, as they would say in those days, and she's got moxie, as you'd say in those days, and. Uh, which I guess a better definition of that is she's very self-possessed and she's very secure in herself and she kind of owns the place when she walks in. We would call that today girl power. She would sure, girl power. sure. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm fine with that. That's actually what I was kind of going for. And, um, and they just are off to the races. And everything else that happens around that is just sort of window dressing for how these two characters who are just trying to make their way in the world and not at the top of the food chain by any stretch mm. of the imagination. And sort of that gives you a snapshot of the world of San Francisco. And I, I suppose the, the teaser to it is that uh, Sammy, who is the bartender, is working the bar when Stilton, the girl, comes in. Like the cheese is yes. how she describes it. Stilton like the cheese. And then he refers to her for the rest of the book as the cheese. They encounter in the bar this Army Air Corps general who works in Roswell, New Mexico, is the commander at the air base in Roswell, New Mexico in 1947. And Sammy says, never heard of it. And he says, there's no reason that you should. Nothing's ever happened there. Turns out something does happen in 1947 in Roswell, New Mexico. And between that and San Francisco and the fog and Chinatown and this collection of friends that Sammy has that are all just... They're not down on their luck. They're just working mugs, getting by in the city. A cab driver and a guy that works in a Chinese nightclub where they do sort of, I guess, Anglo drag would be the word. Yeah, it's, it's you a know? weird thing. And it's a real and thing. And it's based on historical fact. Yeah, I researched the heck out of this book. Yeah. Um, despite all the goofy stuff that happens yeah. in it. Yeah. And and so a lot of it is not plot-wise. Sizing it up, I just give away too much to say the plot. But right. the cast of characters are yeah. really sort of representative of different people that would have lived in the city at that time. And early on, you were taught that every character has to have an agenda. And right. you, you always keep that in mind, I know, when you write. So I thought what we could do is we could go through some of the characters and you could sort of, sure, by to. way of drawing that out, you could say, so So our lead, um, Sammy Two-Shoes, his agenda? Well, I think Sammy just wants to get by in the world. And he... Um, 
his agenda changes as soon as the cheese walks in the door. Let's just say that way. It's just, and that's that's sort of a, one of the conventions of one subgenre of noir is that it's just some guy who's just making it, just getting through life as a bellman or a barman or whatever, and then a dame comes in and everything changes. Everything changes. And that's exactly what happens to to Sammy Tutos Tiffin. But he was injured in an industrial accident on the day before Pearl Harbor and wasn't able to go into the service because of his, uh, he was run over by a forklift, his foot was. And so he wanted, like his brothers, to go into the service. And his whole agenda is really this assumed identity that he had to take afterwards so that people didn't think he was a coward. Mm. And, and he's sort of up against a reputation that he got through no misdeed of his own yeah and um and so he's a little bit undercover he's he he lives in an italian neighborhood and he pretends that he's italian and all of the guys in the neighborhood think he's italian but he's not italian he's just passing and so his agenda is getting by until he meets the cheese and then he's given a task by the guy who owns his bar to find entertainment for this uh air force general and then the story's off to the races and the cheese or stilton I, Stilton is uh, the same thing. She's, and it was important to me to just have a, a a character who was just trying to get by and has a little bit of a past, but it's not, you know, I murdered nine guys and they're in a ditch somewhere. She was a welder in a shipyard in Richmond, California, which is north of Berkeley. As happened in World War II, a lot of these women who normally wouldn't have gone into the workforce went into the workforce, but when all the fellows came back from the war, they went, now go about your life. And so they weren't prepared for that for one reason or another. And, and in Stilton's case, you know, her guy didn't come back from the war. So she's working at the diner counter at a drugstore, um, which existed, you know, everywhere. It were ubiquitous in those days. And she's just trying to get by. You know, she's just, she lives in a little apartment that's dug into the side of a hill on Telegraph Hill and, you know, has to make special arrangements for the rent. And she's just trying to get by. Every character is basically trying to get by. Their agenda until the story starts is just making it day to day, paying rent, putting food on the table, and having a reasonably decent life. It seems like so much of the characters and the setting is influenced by the fact that this is post-Second World War mm-hmm. and the change, a lot of the changes that are happening in, in urban areas, obviously San Francisco in particular. You talk a little bit in the afterwards about racial demographics in San mm-hmm. Francisco and how that influenced neighborhoods right. and, and everything around it. So was that a conscious thought in writing the book that you would sort of demonstrate those tensions? Absolutely. I, I, was, I think it was one of the, it, it makes the setting dynamic. And it was what interested me about picking that time. Yeah. I mean, there was obviously was a lot going on during the war. There's a lot going on a lot of periods of time in San Francisco. Dashiell Hammett wrote about the city in the 1920s. But that era right after World War II, where, you know, you just have so much going on. The African-American population of San Francisco goes up 700% during the war. And the reason is that President Roosevelt does uh, an executive order, I think it's 9066, and it basically says defense contractors may not discriminate by race. So a lot of African-Americans living in the Jim Crow South in a sort of a modified version of sharecropping or working as servants, they come west to Los Angeles and Seattle and Tacoma and, and Oakland and San Francisco to work in these defense factories and where they're going to get a home, get a decent wage, they're going to have a much better chance at opportunity. 
and it changes the whole face of yeah. this, of Western cities. You have these old line ethnic neighborhoods in San Francisco in particular. The Italians have been there 150 years. The Chinese have been there right next door 150 years. And now they're interacting with these new demographics. You've changed the whole way the city's laid out because Western cities had to accommodate all these defense workers. So they, they had all these single residency hotels. And in San Francisco, those exist to this day. But they changed the neighborhood of the Tenderloin from being sort of a dynamic theater district to being a slum because still, you know, in 2018, the last place you go before you're homeless is the Tenderloin because there's these hotels that the city charter says have to be there, you know, because of World War II. So a lot of that was important to me. And it was uh, because I didn't know about it. And when I found it out, I thought it was exciting and cool. And it shapes how all these different cities do business now. Mm-hmm. And it was interesting to put the characters into it. You had another thing that happened is you had all these young men coming back from the war and they needed a place to live. When they left, they were living with their family. When they came back, they wanted to have a wife and kids. So the suburbs are born, you know, and in San Francisco, the sunset, which is sort of the part of the city that leads out to the ocean rather than the bay, there were sand dunes before the war. After the war, they became housing tracks and they're sort of the only housing tracks in San Francisco. And that happened in a lot of cities. It happened in Los Angeles. It happened in Seattle. And so the physical face of the West changed as well. And and perhaps Detroit and Chicago too. I don't know because yeah, yeah, I yeah. didn't research yeah, yeah, them. Exactly. You know, but that's the city I live in. So. And one of the primary ways that you did research was through reading a columnist, Herb. How, how do you pronounce his last Herb name? Herb Kane. So Herb Kane. So tell us a little bit about Herb Kane and your relationship to his work. Well, I actually had when I first moved to California, I lived in Santa Barbara, which is I don't know six seven hours from San Francisco. But I would read the Chronicle, and Herb Kane was writing, oh, you know, time. Life on the yeah. Street. At that time, he wrote from the mid-30s to the mid-90s about life on the street in in, uh, San Francisco. And he was sort of... it was sort of a mix between this is what's happening down in this neighborhood kind of thing and everybody's mad about the traffic behind the cable cars and then a little bit of a society column and you know the the neighbor was spotted in a drinking you know spot down in the tenderloin last night um so he was really like a Walter Winchell kind of guy you know a little bit gossip columnist a little bit man on the street a little bit social justice warrior because he he did write about the uh, vets coming home from the war and how they were sort of uh, put aside. We don't ever hear about that, but the whole area um, on near Third Street in San Francisco, which I didn't know this either until I read it, was a lot of disabled vets who were living on the street and were homeless even at the time of 1947. So Herb really had his finger on the pulse of San Francisco and what the city looked like. And there were elements I would not have known to put in the book had I not read about it. And one of them was the annoyance with the cable cars and how slow they are, even going back to 1947. And that was the year that the city decided, we're going to keep them, but we're only going to have these routes, you know, where they used to go all over the city. Now there's just two routes. And um, there was a, what's called a juke house in Chinatown. And this is where it had been around for a hundred years. Chinese workers working these incredibly long hours at hard work would run into these noodle houses and they would drink a, a, cup of porridge or a bowl of rice porridge called juke because they just needed to get a lot of food value really fast and get back to work. And there was one in Chinatown in the 1940s that was, uh, he describes it as being 10 foot wide and four stories tall. 
So and and each minute, story yeah, was yeah, that. and each story was just a long counter with a bunch of Chinese guys eating noodles and porridge, and a dumb waiter to get the food and the dishes up and down from the back of it. And so that appears in the book and it becomes part of the plot actually. Yeah. But I would have never known something like that or believed something like that existed if he hadn't written about it. And so you know he was. Uh, he was really a chronicle of the history of San Francisco for the 20th century, and it was a great resource. He actually published two books of his columns in 1947, oh. so it was a goldmine for me to oh, say, great. what was yeah. it like? Because everybody I interviewed that had been alive at that time, and I did find a couple of guys that had been in the city in 1947, they couldn't remember. It was really sad. It was like, and I think the one, one fellow I did, I did interview that the one thing he could remember was guys taking their dates out to Playland yeah. by the beach, which is sort of at that time was the Coney Island of San Francisco. So and that's that what, in, that was really imprinted. Yeah, yeah that was everything else he forgot. Face, yeah, you know? <laughs> yeah, and that was the last the, the last thing he could remember about 1947 in San Francisco, and that ends up in the book as well. It's a date between Sammy and the Cheese. All of your books are very, very atmospheric. And when I was researching, I'm surprised to hear that you've only lived in San Francisco for 10 years. It feels like it's so much a part of you. But did this book require more research? And did you want a book like that? Did you want a book that sort of you could dig your teeth into in terms of research? Well, I think that it may be different for a number of reasons. I, th I was starting to do a different book, and the research about San Francisco was to be applied to a different book and a different concept. And then through a discussion with my editor, I ended up sort of settling on something that was in the noir genre. And that just has a different point of view toward the world and the atmosphere than something that might have been a high fantasy or a, yeah. a horror story, which I've done before. Or, and I've said before, perhaps too much, that if you're going to ask people to believe some of the ridiculous things that I ask them to believe, you've got to get the factual stuff right. It's got to yeah, feel like, oh, yeah, sure, yeah, yeah, that yeah. could right, happen. right. And also, my approach to research is, what's cool? It's not, how many numbers can you put in? I think the difference may have been that the context was more a character than it may have been before. Yeah, I, I think so. And I, I don't know if you've done this before. I don't think you have. But where you combined the first person and the third person. I have done that before. And I used some really sort of cheesy... Oh, well, you used the chorus. Is that what you used? Yeah, yeah the okay, cheesy... Right, 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 I, I used right. a cheesy device right, is what right. I was going to say, which I stole from... I from, like to call uh, it the chorus versus the cheesy device. Yeah, well, that's what... <laughs> Shakespeare called it the chorus, but I... Because I, I, you know, I had to fix his stuff. I call it a cheesy device. But yeah, I, I'm... The thing that was sort of necessary for the atmosphere and to to make fun of the genre, to really do the satire part of the book, was to have the first-person voice. But first person's really limited mechanically in a, in a book. You, you, for one thing, you don't really have to be that worried about the narrator. He's going to make it because he told the story unless it's a message found in a bottle, right? So I have done it before. This one, you have a mysterious narrator. In the third person voice, you have this omniscient narrator that tells you, don't worry about who I am. My people know things. And he's telling you the story as if he knows these characters and allows him to go over, yeah. um, you know, see things all over town at different times, different places from different points of view. I like that. I always advise young writers, don't paint yourself into the corner of first person. And they always want to because I think we confuse voice with first person sometimes yeah. and it's not necessary. But this yeah. book required the... I'm a guy and I, you know, I'm, I have a, my personal point of view and a certain vernacular that first person requires, which I've done in my Shakespeare books as well, where 
pocket the fool tells you a lot of the story, but when I need third person, then I have the chorus come in, as you pointed out. And this book has that as well. So I've done it before. This one was a, was an exercise in language, the same way the Shakespeare books are. It's just this is tough guy forties talk instead of you yeah. know Elizabethan talk. Yeah, I, I I think that's really interesting that that sense of voice and and sort of parsing it out. It's not Shakespeare, but it is again another interpretation. Mm-hmm. So you go back and you read the classics like Hamlet and others, but you also mention and it was somebody that I didn't know. Chester Himes. You know, Chester Himes was, um, he's known best for actually writing about New York, the series of Rage in Harlem. And I think Richard Pryor made one or two movies in the 70s about, you know, from a Rage in Harlem, the series, which is about a tough black cop in New York City. And I think it's set in the 30s, but it might be the 20s. I'm not sure. But Himes was, to my knowledge, the only African-American uh, novelist who was successful in his own time, in that period, yeah. in the 40s and 50s. And he, as many African-American writers did, went to live in Paris and wrote about it. But he wrote a book that was really instrumental in this book called If He Hollers, Let Him Go. And it is about an African-American welding crew in Los Angeles working on ships during World War II. And they're sort of living the high life in Los yeah, Angeles, yeah. driving Cadillacs and, and things that they would have never been able to do in the South building kind of their own society within Los Angeles and within the defense industry. And, and, and a, it's a big change for them, but it was still segregated. You know, in the ships, the black crews worked in the inner parts of welding the ships, which would be not ventilated well. And you're dealing with arc welders, which are ridiculously, you know, heat yeah, of the sun yeah, kind of yeah. thing. And they all had to work together. And in my way of introducing it into the book was to have... Sammy, when he can't get into the service, ends up going to work in a shipyard. And because he doesn't know, and he tells you himself, he doesn't know when to keep his trap shut. He says the wrong thing to the foreman, and the foreman puts him in an all-black crew. And that allows that interaction for me. And I had him come from the whitest place I could think, which was Boise, Idaho. So he's (laughs) not only, you know, is he in this environment, but he's in it for the first time. Yeah, completely for And it it was a fun element to mix up. But Chester Himes informed how these guys talked. Okay. You know, how else am I going to know? Because even when you go to the films of that time, they're all censored. Yeah. You know, so I don't know how these guys are going to talk. And I'm sure... Even Chester Himes, even the novels of the time were somewhat censored, but it gave you a little more sense of the rhythm of speech. And there's going to be, I guess you'd call it a cultural appropriation whenever you write dialect, but you can't write dialect unless you do that. So um, I wanted to get it as close as I could to someone who was within the community who observed it and wrote it well, you know. I think Walter Mosley does it beautifully in writing historical Los Angeles in uh, his uh, Easy Rawlings mm-hmm. series. Yep, yep. And I used that a little bit as an example, but but Mosley's contemporary to me. Yeah. And so he's also looking back, whereas Himes was writing at, at the, the time, time. from yep. the point of view of an African-American guy. And, and so if not unique, it was certainly an unusual point of view, but I thought that I needed it to bring a, a little bit of authenticity again to something that I was going to ask you to be you know, believe a lot of silly things. Yeah, 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 yeah. thank you, yeah. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. Is there anything else that you want to say about the plot or the book? Oh, I think I talk too much about the demographics of the city and not about the characters in the story. I, I, but that's because that's what interested me to get into it. And when it happens, it's kind of high comedy and it's fun and it's interaction. I like the cultural interplay of the book and I hope people recognize that. Sammy's best friend is Eddie Shu, a Chinese guy. And, 
the Chinese community in San Francisco is very insular. There's sort of behavior that's allowed and that isn't allowed and very traditional behavior. And because Eddie works as this host at a nightclub where Chinese performers dress up like the Andrews sisters or Frank Sinatra and so forth, he's sort of shunned by his own community. So he's sort of a jazz hep cat guy, but he's Chinese, but he dresses really flashy, wears white and black wingtips, and so they call him Eddie Mooshoes. And the whole group of friends with their different cultural backgrounds, there's Thelonious Jones is this large African-American guy who Sammy's friends with, and he's sort of gotten into the community, into the North Beach community and into the jazz community by Sammy helping him out, getting him a doorman job because Lone helped him out in the shipyard. And uh, they have a, a friend who's Milo, who's sort of a PTSD before they had a word for that guy who fought at the Battle of the Bulge and was blown up in a tank. And he's a cab driver who's afraid of driving. And and so what I want to say is just the interaction of the characters and the friends, because it's sort of a story about these, these friends, it all is. guys who are just making it and wouldn't encounter each other, except that they're the guys who work the nighttime in San Francisco. Yeah, so in addition to it being a great romantic comedy, it is kind of a great buddy movie or a buddy book. You know what I mean? It's in, like in all a way, those, I think. All those guys, yeah, you know. in a way it is. It's And there's the influence that I don't know if I talk about it in the afterward or not, but um, my favorite book has always been Cannery Row by John Steinbeck because there's just a sweetness that he has toward his characters, these very flawed characters that live in Cannery Row and Sweet Thursday. And so there's a lot of influence on that. The bad part of that may be that Cannery Row and Sweet Thursday were written in the 30s and 40s, and so the take on it culturally is yeah. going is a little bit jarring. I mean, this is yeah. the first book I put a trigger warning. In I was the just beginning. gonna say you 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 have to yeah. you had to to say that at the at the very start, didn't you? Yeah. Like, look, we're going back. And yeah, this, this is, is how, how people, people talk, talked. and this is and and I acknowledge that there's that I'm sort of teasing on stereotypes and yeah. stuff, and if that's wrong, well, yeah. mea culpa, you know, yeah. but. But it is influenced a lot by how uh, Steinbeck wrote about the Chinese grocer in in uh, Cannery Row, Lee Chong. And um, I remember a line that he says, who, who spoke perfect English without ever using the letter R, <laughs> um, which cracked me up when I was a kid when I read it. And, and I, you know, again, it's probably not appropriate for a book in, in this uh, millennium, but uh, there you go. But, but I do like the interaction of it and having... Um, Again, from the Herb Kane thing, having Sammy deal with some of these vets who are down on their luck and they're not going to be supported by the community. They're not heroes coming home under a, a waving flag. They're guys yeah. who are just, you know, playing saxophone on the street down on Third Street. So I, I think that, again, the society and, and the way that these these characters interact and their support of each other in, in yeah. what they do makes it a better adventure. They really, none of them know what they're doing. So when they're put in, under stress, it is kind of funny to watch them it try and true. deal with it. You know, and Sammy's trying to drive in a city that he knows really well that he's only walked. Yeah, exactly. And, and things I don't know like how to that. drive. Well, yeah. You drove last night. Well, yeah. I, that's only because you couldn't drive. You know, it's like. And, and when I think uh, the, maybe the one last thing that, and I don't know if it would bring anybody to the book as a reader, but I was fascinated to find this out is San Francisco's always sort of been known as the place that if you're gay or lesbian, you go to find your tribe. You know, um, I, I heard someone in a documentary once about the Castro say that most of us are born into our tribe, but people who are gay and lesbian have to find their tribe. And, and San Francisco, that was ongoing back to the turn of the 20th century. But what I didn't know is that in the 30s and 40s and 50s, there were drag queen clubs on the backside of Telegraph Hill, which was a bohemian neighborhood, but and in, on Broadway, which is 
right between Chinatown and North Beach, the Italian neighborhood. And they were these famous drag king clubs that that um, women would dress up like men. It's just and they yeah. And they <laughs> had, you know, a, a hetero clientele as well as a gay clientele. And they performed and they were cabarets where the same thing that there was a very famous drag queen club called um, Finocchio's that ran from like the 30s up into, you know, I think the 1990s it finally closed. Um, but I didn't know that the other side ended. So that becomes a big sort of, uh, I don't know if it's a plot, but it's it, it appears as a motif yeah. certainly in yeah. the book because I found it so interesting yeah. that it went on for so long. There's a, a famous Hofbrau in San Francisco called Tommy's Joint that exists today and it actually appears in a couple of my earlier books is where the cops go to eat because um, it's good, solid food at a good price. And the original Tommy's Joint, though, was a lesbian bar. And Tommy Vasu was who it was named after, who was a dame who wore men's tuxedos and spats and shiny shoes and smoked cigarettes in a long holder and had a pocket watch and drove fast cars and liked long-legged blondes. And I just thought, this is an awesome character. I love this. And in the 1940s and 50s, too. Imagine yeah, that imagine, kind of yeah, present. Yeah. So, uh, so that is portrayed in the book. So, you know, I, I think that there are people going to stumble onto that and be like I was, which is what I hope to share is like, wow, that's a cool thing that I didn't know existed. There's so many cool things that I didn't know existed in your book, Noir. And there's so many opportunities to laugh, whether in the bath or not. And so I just want to thank you very much. It's You're consistent. You're very, very consistent. And oh, I appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. We hope that you've enjoyed what you've heard. And if you have, that you'll subscribe. To do so, you just go to your podcast app, search for Harper Audio Presents, and click subscribe. That way, you'll never miss a conversation of publisher plus author plus microphone.